0: You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime, in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today.
1: This is episode 3.39, Panic at the Theme Park, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan and I know that Tiger Bomb Colony is kind of bizarre, but it doesn't even come close to topping Texas Colony, so I think we all just need to accept that the Universal Century is, and always has been, full of weird themed colonies.
0: And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta, and slowly going mad as the construction outside MSB Studios continues.
1: This is week three, week
2: four?
0: I think three. But I, they're also obviously not even close to done yet, so. <laughs> Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 451 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Cal, David R., and JWT. This podcast would not be possible without your support. Help keep us ad-free by becoming a patron today at GundamPodcast.com Patreon a subscriber at Subscribestar.com slash Gundam Podcast, or making a one-time payment on our Ko-fi page ko-fi.com slash Gundam Podcast. Next week, June 19th, 2021, there will be no new episode as we are taking some long-delayed family time. This will be our last break of Season 3, and when we return, we will be covering the beginning of the end of Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta.
1: But this week we are covering episode 41, Rosara's Life, or Rasara no Inochi. This episode originally aired on December 13th, 1986. It was written by Endo Akinori and directed by Kunihisa Sugishima, with storyboards by Takizawa Toshifumi. For our research this week, I think the big picture story in Zeta and Double Zeta was inspired by the tale of the Heike, and it's about time for me to start explaining why. Those of you who have seen the episode might be asking, will there be a eulogy this week? And the answer is no. The show didn't earn it. This is a new rule I'm instituting in order to punish the show for engaging in catastrophic, not-earning-it behavior. So, instead, it's a new episode of Radio Free Shangri-La.
2: Alice Computesworth and her mysterious ally, the man who looks suspiciously like Hector Pariah, depart for Dublin and Beach Mansion. But at that very moment, elsewhere in the Presidential Palace, Strobe Flanagan and the space squire Zabibi are looking for someone else who looks just like Hector Pariah. And that man is... Hector Pariah himself! Are you sure it was alright for us to leave Alice alone? That butler looked like quite the shady fellow. Zabibi. Ah, just a moment. Let me turn on my new and improved Universal Translation earpiece. Now, what was that?
3: Zabibi. We're in more trouble than Alice is. The attack during the party disrupted the precarious alignment of the realities. If we don't find a way back to the League of Free Planets soon, we'll be trapped on this side of the dimensional membrane.
2: And then there will be no one to stop Admiral Evil from destroying Z and killing Mackenharm. Zabibi, we've got to find a way back. But how?
3: If my theory is correct, it was the confluence of parties that inadvertently created this collision of realities in the first place. To get back, we just need to find something else that exists across multiple realities. If I attune a Psycomer to the vibrations from its spatiotemporal waves, then I can manipulate the Zabanovsky particle lattice and open a wormhole back home. Ha <laughs> ha!
2: Brilliant! In theory, at least. But how are we supposed to know if something in this dimension also exists in the League of Free Planets? Wait! Of course! That man who came to warn Alice, Bethany, and the butler recognized him!
3: Almost as if he were a transdimensional duplicate of someone from their reality.
2: Oh, but what if he was merely a body double? Wait, do you hear that? Oh. There it is again, like a giraffe in the night. It's coming from the humidor! Some time later. He's coming around. Oh, I'm alive. Blast it all. I have to go. I have to- Take it easy. You've lost too much blood to go anywhere right now. If Sabibi here weren't a fully qualified space surgeon, you'd be dead.
3: Again, I am so, so sorry you had to stop me from removing his heart. I did not realize you humans only had one. What
4: did he say?
3: Nothing, don't worry about it. It's shoddy design. What are you supposed to do if the heart fails unexpectedly?
2: Uh, what my friend is saying is that we encountered someone who looks just like you, and we were wondering if you knew which dimension he's from. At least your brains are redundant. (laughs) Right?
4: Which dimension? Uh, this one?
2: You mean he's not your dimensionally transplaced doppelganger? Is he just a body double?
4: No. That's got to be <coughs> my twin brother. He works for the Federation's foreign ministry. He recruited me and Alice to... <coughs> to, <coughs> to, to steal the worth fortune from Bethany?
2: <gasps> Where did you come from? Wait, I recognize you. You're the pizza delivery man. We met in the stairwell.
4: I'm actually a private detective. I thought I was tracking down a murderous butler. But after what I heard tonight, I realized I had once again stumbled onto something much bigger. I came back to gather more evidence and found you all here. Now fess up, Hector. What's the game? Is all of this really just because one incredibly rich woman doesn't want to share with her sister? AND WHY IS THE FEDERATION INVOLVED? NO... <clears throat> IT'S... THERE WAS SOMETHING. AN ITEM. A VINTAGE HARO. IT WAS A GIFT FROM THEIR UNCLE Musk AFTER THE WAR. THEIR PARENTS LEFT IT TO BETHANY, BUT NO ONE KNEW. IT HAD SOMETHING HIDDEN IN IT. A SECRET FAR MORE VALUABLE AND DANGEROUS THAN ALL THE REST OF THE Computesworth FORTUNE COMBINED. When my brother learned about it he sent me to seduce bethany i was to win her trust and retrieve the harrow but i couldn't find it
2: and then i got caught up in the grips conflict so when alice returned from our mission he recruited her too
4: he got in touch when she was being debriefed told her about the clause in the will said the best way to get the harrow was just to take
2: bethany's whole inheritance
4: but what's in the horror? What could be
2: worth all of this? Maybe it's an old Federation document that reveals the whole premise of the government is a sham.
4: I don't think so, but... oh, I don't know. I don't think Alice does either. But whatever it is, it's important. Important enough that Alice and my brother will do anything to get it.
1: And now the recap.
0: After the recent kidnap, escape, and encounter with Haman and Tiger Bomb Colony, the Nail Argama's crew is tense. Should Judo confront Haman? Why did she go to all this trouble to find him? What should they do now? Sarasa blames Haman and her aura for creating this atmosphere of suspicion and distrust. She and Rasara have been trying to shield the crew, but Rasara is weakening, and so Sarasa plans to sneak off alone to try to talk to Haman again. So shaky she can barely walk down a hall, Rasara still insists on coming along, and they become a group of three when Mondo spots them leaving. When the others notice that the three of them are gone, they fear that they've been captured, and Judo, Rue, El, and Lunan go looking. In the colony, Stampa tries to make up for the kidnapping by groveling to Haman, prostrating himself on the ground and offering to deal with the Nail Argama and its crew himself. The city is bustling, its brightly lit streets thronged with vendors and shoppers, and Sarasa, Rosara, and Mondo weave their way through the crowds until they find themselves unexpectedly surrounded by a group of Stampa's men. Mondo has to barrel through one of them to clear a path, and the three of them run pell-mell away from their would-be captors. They manage to hide down an alley and stop to catch their breath by the side of the water, but their relief is short-lived. The water boils and bubbles, and a zagok emerges, piloted by Stampa. He chases them, trying to stomp Mondo underfoot and reducing the streets and sidewalks to rubble in the process. Staggering, Mondo trips and falls to the ground. Rasara throws herself over him, and Stampa, with the Zagok's foot poised overhead, hesitates. The mobile suit loses its balance and falls into a nearby building, sending a rain of rubble falling to the ground. Rasara is hit. Stampa flees, and their friends from the Nail Argama arrive, but it's too late to do anything for Rosara. She dies in her sister's arms, Mondo crying over her, and Judo runs off by himself to confront Haman for her part in this. He finds her at the top of the broad staircase at the entrance to Stampa's mansion and grounds. When he angrily confronts her about the people she's killed, the suffering she's caused, Haman laughs in his face. She offers him one more opportunity to join her. When they are interrupted, Stampa appears with a group of guards, his former deference forgotten. While Haman tries to get him to leave, Judo's friends arrive, L armed with a rocket launcher. She calls out for Judo to duck, then fires. Stampa and his men dive for cover, and Haman slides down the slope and runs away into the woods. Judo tries to follow her, but moments later, Stampa and his guards, this time in mobile suits, arrive. The group from the Nail Argama drive away, but won't be able to outrun multiple mobile suits for long. Bicha arrives in the Zeta, providing some much needed backup. L shoots the camera of one of the mobile suits, incapacitating it. And the fight seems to be shifting in their favor when Ilya arrives. After being briefly distracted fighting Bicha, she finds where Lady Haman escaped to and picks her up, taking her to the safety of Mashima's ship. In a daze ever since Rosara's death, Mondo decides to join the fight, even as Sarasa worries about the endless cycle of vengeance. Mondo makes a beeline for Stampa, handily slicing a leg from the Zagok and leaving it helpless. Without hesitation, he jumps into the air, and plunges his beam saber through the cockpit of the downed mobile suit. Stampa is dead, and the fight is over. The remaining members of the Light Tribe take their shuttle and Rasara's body and return to Moon Moon. Astonagi leading the Nail Argama crew in a silent prayer as the shuttle launches.
1: I think it's really unfair to the prior episode that people refer to these as the Tiger Bomb episodes because while they do both take place in Tiger Bomb and feature the same cast of characters, they are really different episodes. The last one had its ups and downs, certainly. Some aspects of it were not as good as we were accustomed to. and. And maybe they were doing some things with the story that had the potential to be interesting but weren't realized in quite the way we would have liked but the episode we just watched this week is um bad on like every level just shoddy amateurish workmanship
0: it's just not good i'm sure tom has his own theories for that but my big one is that double zeta was extended this is more episodes than they thought they were going to have previously, and if they already had the ending plotted out, and we are very close to the end now, if they already knew exactly how they wanted the end to go, and then somebody tells them, oh, but we need you to add four episodes or something, however many it is, then your team is put in the position of having to write these episodes in a way that does not affect or change what you have already decided is going to be the ending. And so you really can't have anything important or impactful happen because most of what might happen that would be important or impactful would then change things about how you had planned on ending the show.
1: I think that is all definitely true and speaks to the larger structural problems with the Tiger Bomb episodes, though it doesn't quite explain why things like the animation in this episode are so not good. And especially when you compare it to the prior episode, which has all the same big picture problems and comes out of that same request for additional episodes, I have to assume and this is based on both what we saw on the screen and my own experience working on projects but probably they didn't have enough time to do everything that they wanted to do and they spent more time than they ought to have on the prior episode and by this point they were just playing catch up a lot of stuff in this episode feels um like a first draft like it could have been dramatically improved by just taking another crack at it, putting in some more hours that clearly they just didn't have. Despite the low quality of the animation, the people, at least at the top of working on this episode, were not amateurs. They're all experienced, veteran, double Zeta and Zeta people. It was written by Endo, it was directed by Sugishima, the storyboards were done by Takizawa Toshifumi, who was the director of Dirty Pair. Like, these are really good animators getting crunched on this episode the one person who actually was new to their job and might have borne the brunt of the responsibility for how this episode turned out was the animation director Uh, that was ozone masami at least if the anime news network credits are correct this was ozone's first time as an animation director but don't hold this kind of rough start against him because in just a couple of years, he's going to be the animation director for an episode of Giant Robo, which is one of anime's like best-looking projects ever.
0: Oh man, yeah, Giant Robo is incredible. Whenever one particular episode stands out as having seemingly much worse animation than we're used to in the series as a whole, I always assume there's some kind of resource crunch, whether that's time or money or experienced staffers who are working on other episodes or even other shows. The episode got squeezed in some way (laughs) and that's how we wind up with uh, some of the rather funny in hindsight (laughs) animation in this episode.
1: Yeah, to the credit of the people who worked on this episode, If you watch it with a careful eye, you'll notice that there are a lot of shortcuts being taken, a lot of tricks being used to disguise how little animation is actually in the episode and how, again, not great it is. Because they're good at their jobs, because they're good artists, they were able to produce something that looks honestly better than it has any right to, but you can only disguise so much in that way.
0: When we talk about minimal animation, we're talking about scenes like uh, when Stampa is in the mobile suit and has it jumping up and down when they're clearly just moving the cell <laughs> up and down without changing the mobile suit at all.
1: Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm.
0: The old woman street vendor, when one of Stampa's men puts a hand on her shoulder and tells her to move along, they just kind of move her cell backwards <laughs> in, yeah. in kind of a jerky way so it's not it's still unnaturally smooth but they made an effort to have it be a little like jerky and uneven
1: and they don't always do that there's a lot of scenes where someone enters the frame just sort of like without animation just smoothly gliding in
0: there's an overhead shot when mondo sarasa and Rosara are running from stampa's men and those two groups of people are the only things moving, even though it's an overhead shot of a crowded street full of people.
1: They pull that same trick earlier when they're just walking around this like shopping street. I actually think that ends up looking really good.
0: In that one, I think it does. We have the foreground crowd of people, and then we have the background shops, and then we have the actual characters animated moving through it. That, I thought, looked neat. In the overhead shot, because there's no depth, mm. I don't think it works as well.
1: That's fair, it's- yeah. I was thinking of the the two times that they do it from the side and they've clearly just got two drawings and they're sliding them past each other. And they managed to make that look, like I said, way better than it has any right to. You mentioned the running and I have in my notes that everybody is running everywhere all the time. And I think that's another trick because once you animate the like five cells that make up the run cycle you can just repeat that infinitely and you get motion but it doesn't need to be different each time you only need to draw it a couple of times
0: there's a very strange looking (laughs) bit of animation when rasara is dying and she reaches up a hand to take her sister's hand and it's just like a straight fluid motion of a cell of her hand like reaching into the frame it's weird
1: it it couldn't possibly be have been her hand based on the way it moved but of course it was supposed to be uh,
0: and then in two of the fight scenes we get a little bit of use of slow motion moments when it looked better than it had any right to <laughs> the first being when mondo barrels into one of these guys that surround him and sarasa and rasara so that they can all get out and run away And the second one being when Ilya trips Bicha when they're both in mobile suits.
1: Yeah. I mean, you can tell watching the episode that whatever resources they did have, they poured into the fight scene. This was clearly a a wow, cool robot kind of thing for them because the fight scene is the best looking part of the episode.
0: Absolutely. While we are talking about the episode quality, I will say that in terms of the visual design, not necessarily the animation, but the look of the episode, it does a few things that I really expected them to do in the last episode. We get this very 80s CMY lighting on a couple of scenes of the city itself. So we have like a packed, busy city and the lighting is all sort of cyan color, magenta, and yellow, the grid, and this sense of glass and concrete contrasted with things like Stampa's compound. There's a persistent feeling throughout the episode of the contrast between old and new, east and west. In the street scenes, there's signage in Chinese, and there's signage in English. There are people dressed in more traditional clothing. There are people dressed in Western clothing. There are Asian people. There are white people. There are modern looking shops and there are street vendors. There's one man who I think might be supposed to be a fortune teller.
1: (laughs) I think so. I think so. Uh, And the pushy street vendor woman with the case full of jewelry. Yeah, it feels vibrant. It feels alive. We get a good sense of the relationship between Stampa and the city. He describes it as his garden, and we see on the streets that his private security forces, his thugs, basically run the colony, but not seemingly in any kind of official way.
0: That was one of the few high points, one of the (laughs) the bits I actually liked about this episode.
1: Yeah, we need to especially call out the good bits, uh, since they were kind of few and far between, but let's acknowledge them where they are. There's one really funny bit in the episode. There's a bunch of parts that are supposed to be funny, clearly, and don't work. But the one that really does work is when Stampa is in the zagok and he's about to stomp on Mondo. Rosara throws herself across Mondo, which is dumb, and we'll talk about that in the bad parts of the episode. But uh, Stampa seeing this pretty girl in the path of his attack immediately freezes but because he's frozen in the middle of lifting up his foot to stomp the zagak counterbalances backwards and starts falling over it's, loses, it's really funny he
0: loses his balance and starts to crash into a building next to him
1: and they give l a rocket launcher i thought that was a great touch l should have a rocket launcher in every episode
0: That is good, but I feel like we should talk about Rosara now that you brought her up.
1: Yeah, I mean, that one good bit does transition immediately into what I would say is the low point of the episode.
0: First, there's the fact that if someone was being stepped on by a mobile suit, another person between them and the mobile suit is almost certainly not going to do any good.
1: Just the dumbest thing in the world.
0: She may have been providing psychic protection for the group for a while now, and we'll get to that later. (laughs) But uh, there's no indication that she's capable of physically shielding anybody. And then some rubble falls, and I think we're meant to think that some of it hits her, even though...
1: It very clearly, obviously on screen, in a wide shot, does not hit her. Right,
0: it doesn't even land near her. It does not appear to be anywhere near her. It's gotta be
1: at least two meters away and Mondo is completely unharmed.
0: There's no blood, no cuts, no bruises on her when we do see her, even though everyone is looking like, oh gosh, she's mortally wounded. Uh. I just, um, it's a shame. I've mentioned <laughs> on the podcast before, I consider myself very sensitive. I cry easily. I'm easy for tragedy, right? It, it's not hard for a story to make me feel that something is tragic and to make me feel sad about it. And I felt nothing here.
1: I felt a lot of things, all of them anger, and all of them directed
4: at the people who put this episode together.
0: I just felt a little bored, honestly. There's that bit at the, at the very end after she tells her sister Sister, look after the light tribe. And after we've been distracted from what they clearly want to be a solemn and sad scene by the weird arm movement. Uh, and then she's like, Mondo, I... <clears throat> dies before she can finish whatever it was she was going to say to him. And it's the oldest, tropiest, most uh, baldly manipulative <laughs> thing that they could have <laughs> done there. And it, it's so bad. And I just... Like, okay. Another person got killed kind of pointlessly. (laughs) (laughs) Shrugging motion.
1: (laughs) Alright, I'm going to lose my cool for a second here, okay? Are we all ready for this? We do not need any more motivational deaths! We do not need another one. We have had too many already. No one needed to be motivated here. Mondo was already motivated. Judo was already motivated. Sarasa was motivated. Everybody was already motivated. We did not need more motivation. No one needed to die. No one needed to throw themselves in the way of this stupid f- foot. We have evolved past the need for motivational deaths. Stop it. Come up with something new. Come up with something interesting. Girls do not exist just so they can die. Well That's a relief. I'm going to get my cool back.
0: Okay. <laughs> killing off characters can feel lazy. It can feel like, you know, here are some writers who couldn't figure out another way to raise the stakes in this episode or to make us invested emotionally in what was happening or to motivate certain other characters to do things and so they kill somebody off. And maybe that's part of why I have so little reaction to it is we've had so many of them And several of them considerably better executed than this one. Uh, that at this point, I just...
1: After Lala, and Moar, and Four, and Sarah, and Huru, and I'm sure there are others that I'm missing. It just doesn't have any impact anymore.
0: She was also the most interesting as a character when she was in opposition to her sister. But ever since those original Moon Moon episodes ended, they've basically felt like the same person. Uh, Yeah. She didn't feel like an individual. And so.
1: Yeah. I want to speculate about this scene a little bit because I do feel like maybe what they were trying to do wasn't adequately conveyed to us. And that doesn't fix any of the big problems with the scene, or the fact that we don't care about these characters that much, or the fact that they've repeated this trope so many times that it's lost all meaning, but I do want to examine what it could have been a little bit more. I think maybe we were supposed to get the impression that Rosara was already sick, or in decline, or even dying. The line early on about her getting weaker because she's using all of her energy to shield the Gundam crew, or that bit when she's in the hallway and she just sort of goes, ah!
0: She collapses a little bit. I wondered about that initially, if her death wasn't from sort of psychic exhaustion rather than being hit by some rubble.
1: Yeah. And I also wonder if maybe there was a miscommunication within the team, because when she gets injured by the rubble that doesn't fall on her, everybody around her immediately reacts as though she's been injured. Yeah. They all know. The show knows that she's dying from the way it's presented to us. So clearly the intention was that she gets mortally wounded in that scene. But did that just not get conveyed to the person who drew that particular cut?
0: I'm reminded of Amaro's confrontation with Iselina.:
1: I also thought about
3: Amaro's confrontation with Iselina.
0: That also made no sense.
1: She has simply lost the will to live. I do have uh, a headcanon theory that I think explains away all the inconsistencies in this scene. Are you prepared to hear it? Go on. I think this is going to absolutely blow your mind, and it's going to turn the whole Tiger Bomb episode on its head. Rosara is not dead. Rosara couldn't figure out how to break up with Mondo.
0: She faked her death and her sister wasn't on it? Yes. Is that why her sister is like, um, maybe don't go fight Haman now.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And it's why they don't put her in a space coffin and shoot her off into the depths of space. It's why they put her on the transport and then head back to Moon Moon. Ah, she's gonna go be buried. You'll never see her again. So tragic. Bye.
0: But then what if Mondo really does go visit after the war is over?
1: Well, they're they're twins, so they could pull off a nice, like, parent-trap-style deception there.
0: A bunch of the stuff with the two sisters from the Light Tribe and the way that it intersects with the new type stuff, um, I have a fairly high tolerance for the new type stuff in the show, and I give it a lot of grace, but this all felt like such tacked-on not well built into the story, fluff.
1: You're but just saying that because this is in line with what I said last week and what you told me you didn't buy. That Aman was trying to convince Judo, but using her like manipulative new type powers the way Sirocco did, and that uh, the Light like, Tribe girls were shielding him with their powers.
0: But they're also saying that Haman's new type energy and the evil energy of this place is assaulting the whole crew all the time.
1: Causing them to lose trust in each other.
0: It's sort of unclear if they mean this in like a passive or an active sense. Is Haman literally consciously attacking them with her brainwaves or just being near Haman is dangerous for everybody. Being near the corrupt Tiger Bomb colony is bad for people.
1: I assume it's the latter. I assume that as new types, you know, they, they have their, what the show calls pressure. They project these auras of themselves out into the world and other new types and sensitive individuals pick up on it.
0: And in a, in a philosophical or even just a living life sense, <laughs> humans have long acknowledged that people around you can influence you, an environment can influence you, being in a particular kind of place can change the way you think, you feel, can change your behavior. Even if it's not consciously controlling you, it affects you. It mm-hmm. sort of pulls you into whatever its norms are. But to say that the the attack or contagion or curse or whatever is passive, but then that their protection is active, right? It's not that they're such good people and being near everybody preaching calm and forgiveness is going to counteract these like negative effects of the power-hungry haman and the corrupt stampa it's like oh no these are power-hungry and corrupt people but we're using our super prayer magic (laughs) to protect (laughs) you from that and i can't tell if the show actually believes in them or not i feel like the show frequently undercuts them Because we had the whole thing last episode where Sarasa tried to convince Stampa of the error of his ways, and he clearly didn't feel it at all. And she tried to talk to Haman about, this isn't the true you, and you have self-deceit in your heart, and you have to let the light shine upon you. And Haman is just like, I want my own room. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
1: yeah, but like, it's hard to convince bad people to stop being bad. That's one of the enduring problems of our age.
0: But aren't they magic?
1: Well, yeah, but... (laughs) Clearly, it's more of a defensive magic. It reads as totally plausible to me that it would take active work to counteract passive harm. Like, that doesn't seem weird to me at all. I agree with you that the show is very ambiguous about who these sisters are, is their power real, where does it come from, what is their relationship to new typism, are the teachings of the Light Tribe good and valid, or sort of superstitious nonsense?
0: In particular, that moment when... Judo goes to confront Haman, and Sarasa is thinking to herself about how the cycle of hate can just continue indefinitely unless at some point someone forgives. Which is true, but feels like a premature point to make when we're still in the middle of a war in which Haman is trying to take over all of humanity. Feels like maybe we're not at the forgiving Haman stage yet.
1: But a lot of people do preach that kind of attitude. I don't think we're supposed to read the Light Tribe as ideal or correct in everything, but I do think we are supposed to see them as a different interpretation of similar phenomena that the rest of the show has been dealing with, a different solution to the same problems, and not necessarily a complete one, but that something about their practice allows them to get close to some part of the truth. Probably Sarasa and Rasara have that thing that if they had been born anywhere but moon, moon, we would call new typeism. I think they have those abilities. Okay. But just as the society of the universal century generated the idea of new type that doesn't one-to-one match up with these people and their abilities, the light tribes, very different society generated this very different idea of what those abilities and those people meant and were, and it became the prophet's.
0: And now I'm thinking about Sarasa's insistence that Haman is dangerous and possibly like a curse on humanity, but also deeply sad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She's such a sad woman. She's so alone. This isn't really her. While perhaps an interesting insight does not feel particularly useful. (laughs) Yeah. And we get one of uh, the clearest and most explicitly stated encapsulations of Haman's philosophy She basically tells Judo that to achieve true greatness, to be really great, he has to abandon and reject humanity, in essence, that he needs to abandon emotion and connection and relationships. When she talks about people being held back by Earth's gravity and the Earth itself, she's talking about being human and that to be truly great, new types have to stop being human.
1: For that and other reasons, this conversation between Judo and Haman strongly reminded me of the confrontation between Shar and Amuro in Abawaku at the end of First Gundam. Shar very much appears to be trying to convince Amuro to join him in some kind of new type supremacist endeavor. This is a, a similar pitch from Haman, although, in her case, aided by her powerful, almost magical aura. She's basically saying. You need to be isolated in order to be free.
0: And that his conception of morality, and that she does anything wrong when she kills people, is, to her, part of what's holding him back.
1: I read it as having more to do with his personal, powerful, emotional response to the suffering of these individual people. He cares so much about what happened to Rosara, and to Mondo, and Alina and Haman doesn't even know who they are. They're as insignificant to her as insects as everyone else is. And part of the reason that I really am glad that they made the shift from Camille to Judo in Double Zeta, as much as I love Camille as a character, is that Camille was always very isolated. Camille was a lot like Haman in a lot of ways, and so having a clash between the two of them wouldn't represent the same clash of ideals that seeing Judo, who is by far the most interconnected of all the Gundam protagonists so far, fighting against Haman, the most truly isolated antagonist. They're almost the platonic ideals of their respective positions, and we are racing towards seeing the two of them clash.
0: So that was good, even if we don't completely agree on... Uh, Our interpretations of it. There's also a nice little bit of characterization when Haman throws a coin to the boatman who helped her escape from the park.
1: Extremely Haman energy there.
0: She doesn't actually throw it to him. She throws it generally at him, but onto the deck of his boat so that he has to turn and crouch and pick it up. That just felt very Haman. She doesn't look him in the face. She has no idea who this guy is does not really care about the quote-unquote little people, despite her professed interest in seeing how the other half lives.
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, I thought that was particularly funny since she mostly just saw Stampa's mansion. So if if she thinks he's the other half, she has a radically skewed idea about life in the Earth sphere.
0: And I suspect this is just a continuity error, but she appears to have abandoned her young companion on Tiger Bomb. They make a point of having her, the young woman, be the one to bring out drinks at the beginning of the episode when a presumably terrified Stampa Haloy is prostrating himself in front of Haman. Uh, And then when Haman makes her escape, there's no sign of her (laughs) young friend anywhere.
1: Just completely abandoned.
0: And in another moment that felt very disconnected from what's been happening lately, Before she leaves, Sarasa points out to Judo again that he and Haman are connected, and he seems surprised by the suggestion. It's like, hang on, since the first time you encountered Haman, your new type auras have interacted with each other, there's been a strange sort of connection between the two of you since the beginning of this show. How is this surprising to you in any way?
1: Another weird character turn. You had just mentioned how at the beginning of the episode, Stampa is bowing and scraping, prostrating himself. I think both out of terror that Haman is going to punish him, but also out of natural greed. There's a powerful person near him, and he wants to take advantage of that.
0: You may think it looks like Niozion is going to win the war, or at least take over all of side three.
1: And this feels like we're just doing Gemon Bajak in Shangri-La again, because it's basically the same setup. Gross, local, rich guy offers to go use his personal kind of janky kind of old mobile suit to bring in those rambunctious teens, and then he has a comical failure to do so. Very repetitive. But then, later in the episode, he interrupts Judo and Haman during the middle of their very tense ideological interaction. And I think the reason that he has to do this is because if nobody interrupted them, they would just keep talking and maybe have some...
0: Maybe get somewhere. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but he does interrupt it. But within the story, why does he interrupt it? Why does he decide to turn on Haman when he was clearly so terrified of and like, eager to get into the good graces of Haman?
0: Yeah, his indifference to her telling him to butt out of it here uh, felt like bad writing. It was like, hang on, we just had him bowing and scraping 20 minutes ago. What are you doing?
1: Yeah, now he's shown up with a bunch of guards with guns, but he always had those. Nothing has meaningfully changed. Right,
0: Haman was always here with no guards and no protection. Yeah, it's, uh, it's strange. I'd like to end by talking about a part that I actually thought was very interesting and potentially very good. Though, as with so many parts of a show like this, I think whether or not it's really good sort of hangs in the balance of whether they do anything with it later. So I don't have high hopes, but...
1: (laughs) Yeah, Double Z hasn't exactly been the best for that.
0: Mondo killing Stompa. Yeah. Because... He doesn't hesitate. We see a lot of people hesitate. We just saw Judo hesitate to kill Haman. And afterwards, rather than giving us the kinds of emotion that I think we see more often in Gundam, things like sorrow, regret on the negative emotion side, or like exaltation, or even relief on the positive emotional side, he looks shocked. And as though he feels a bit numb, mm-hmm. as if he's waiting to feel something more and it's not happening. Yeah. He says when he's doing it that it's vengeance for Rasara. Afterwards, he says, I did it. And it's just kind of there. Even when he's leaving, even when he's saying goodbye to Sarasa on the nail argama, the affect is very blunt.
1: And there's an awkwardness between the two of them that feels like it's mostly coming from Mondo.
0: I think he knows that Sarasa would not want him to kill anybody, even Stampa Haloy.
1: Yeah, I thought that was nicely done. I want to talk about him as though he were a person or an actor. Like, Mondo turned in good work this episode, by which I mean that the writer did a good job of writing Mondo, and the animators did a good job of animating him, and his voice actor turned in a really sterling performance.
0: Although I was grossed out by the writing when they first encounter Stampa oh, in the God. mobile suit. Yeah, that, and it's, it's not like these women don't want you, leave them alone. It's, they don't like old guys like you, they like young guys. Like me. Right. They're human people and they're standing right there.
1: I think this was supposed to be funny. It wasn't. But it's one of the things that I think was supposed to be funny.
0: It's not o- good banter. The only bit that I thought was supposed to be funny and actually was, was when, I forget who it is, but somebody yells at Stampa, like, no, stop, oh, don't it, attack Becha. us. Oh, it's it's like, in, in the Zeta. Ah, and Stampa's like, has anyone in the history of fights ever stopped just because the person they're attacking it was like, <laughs> no.
1: Yeah, that was, that was a good line. Also, this is the first time I think we've seen L impressed by Bicha. Which, given that they've been maybe kind of low-key dating and might be engaged, it's nice to see between the two of them.
0: I do not understand the Gundamverse rules for when a captain is supposed to leave his ship and when he's supposed to stay with his ship.
1: They're more of guidelines.
0: Everybody acts like these are some, some hard rules that tell you a lot about the person involved. <laughs> so,
1: Yeah. Bicha makes a big deal about having left Eno in charge.
0: Well, when they first leave, Eno makes a big deal out of Bicha having to stay.
1: And that's where you can really see the gears behind the story turning. Because it's clearly that Bicha has to stay so that later in the story, when they're in trouble, Bicha can arrive to rescue them in the Zeta. That's the reason to have Bicha there. It's the reason, I think, that Lunan is even in this episode. The character is so superfluous except that he's there to be Judo's like sounding board at a couple of points, playing exactly the role that Bicha would if Bicha had been allowed to go out with them.
0: Having Lunan there, but not any of Lunan's friends or his little sister uh, also felt strange.
1: The whole bit with Lunan and his friends is, I think, emblematic of how this episode just completely drops all of the themes and storylines that were developing in the prior episode. A huge part of the prior episode was showing us the interweaving of the two ways in which Stampa Haloy was like a predator or a parasite because he was both economically oppressing this colony and like extracting wealth from high taxes and forcing even children into indentured servitude in probably extremely dangerous conditions on asteroid mines and also the way he was sexually preying on people, the way he was using his power to force women to satisfy his lusts, and that those two were not actually separate parts of his character, but part of the same interwoven tapestry of power and abuse. And that's completely out the window in this episode. The only reference to Stampa being a total creep is that line where he's like, I was going to make you wives number 13 and 14. The kids disappear. Haman's attendant disappears.
0: The more I think about this episode, the more it makes no sense. Why on earth would you deploy a mobile suit and try to stomp these kids to death? I can sort of see you sending your gang after them to try to catch them in the street. But why not set some kind of a trap? Why not, <laughs> why not do something smart?
1: <laughs> I also don't buy that he just happened to be in exactly the right place so that when they ran out onto this pier, having not even intended to be there but having escaped from Stampa's men, he and his zagok just happened to be there? Come on. It's funny to think about how at the time that this was made, Probably nobody imagined that 35 years later we'd be sitting here talking about it in such minute detail.
0: Almost certainly not.
1: And when you make a piece of art, when you make something like this, you make it under the conditions that exist in the moment when you're making it. And in this case, that was that they just didn't have the time or maybe the money in order to make the episode that they would have liked to make, that they were capable of making. And yet, the thing continues to exist long after those conditions are no longer relevant.
0: I often feel, as we talk about Gundam, that I really hope uh, the people involved don't actually (laughs) listen to our podcast, because our whole thing is looking critically at the work and talking about things that we like and don't like, and why, and trying to tease apart what that means. But most of this is stuff I would never tell a creator to their face. (laughs) I'm not someone who feels some sort of obligation or particular entitlement to tell creators my opinion of their work. If I start reading a book, don't like it and don't finish it, I don't hop on Twitter to tell the author that. (laughs) I have a lot of respect for the time and the craft and the effort that goes into a work of art, an animation, a show...
1: And we're here talking about them because we like them, and because we think they made something important.
0: And and deserve to be taken seriously.
1: And important doesn't always mean good, and taking it seriously means that we're often going to challenge it and talk about the ways in which we think it doesn't
0: work. And I'm sure many of the people involved didn't like things about this episode, or maybe they have completely different least favorite episodes from the series episodes that did not turn out the way they wanted them to for various reasons you know no artist is satisfied
1: and like you said the things that they don't like are probably going to be very different from the things that we don't like because it's going to be very idiosyncratic to their own experiences of working on it and what they were trying to do
0: so i hope we didn't come off disrespectful but this is a bad episode And now, part one of Tom's research on the tale of the Heike, and how this classic of Japanese literature may have influenced Zeta and Double Zeta.
1: Around the midpoint of this episode, Judo and Sarasa share a brief but deeply meaningful discussion about Haman's nature. Sarasa sees her as a sad figure. Judo describes her in almost supernatural terms, as an embodiment of the resentment carried by all those... Xeon diehards exiled into the cold and the dark. Now she has returned, like the ghost of Xeon, bearing that grudge to curse the Earth's sphere. This characterization of Haman, which I see as totally consistent with the way she's been portrayed across both Zeta and Double Zeta, reminded me, and not for the first time, of the tale of the Heike, and two exiles whose lives were crucial to that story. Today I'm going to talk about the first of those two, an emperor who became a demon. I've mentioned the tale of the Heike before, specifically in episode 2.5 when I talked about the interplay of grief and masculinity as represented in epic literature, and in episode 2.6 when I talked about angry ghosts, including the angry ghosts of the Tyra, the warrior clan whose ultimate downfall is the subject of the tale of the Heike but I don't believe I've ever laid out exactly why I think that the tale was a major inspiration for the grand political narrative that plays out across Zeta and Double Zeta. And now that we're racing headlong toward the climax of Double Zeta, perhaps it's time to begin doing that.
0: I just had the lightbulb of like, oh, a clan that's trying to take control and then winds out wiped out completely to the last person. Like... That couldn't have anything to do with the zombies. Who
1: can say, really? (laughs) I mean me, obviously that's what I'm doing, but not today. Today we're starting even before all of that. The Tale of the Heike is a quasi-historical epic traditionally sung by roaming bards, playing the biwa, a kind of lute. It was initially compiled sometime after the 1180s, when the real events it recounts took place, but before 1330, when the monk Kenko Yoshida mentioned it in his collection of essays, The Harvest of Leisure, which is, by the way, a great name for a collection of essays from somebody who just sat around writing all day. Various versions of the text have survived, and the most widely read version was compiled by a blind monk in 1371. We can be confident that Gundam Zeta and Double Zeta's creators knew the tale of the Heike. It's a foundational piece of Japan's culture, widely read and frequently adapted. In the introduction to his translation of the tale, Royal Tyler said of it that no work of Japan's classical literature influenced more pervasively the art, literature, and drama of later centuries. Heike is a seminal masterpiece of Japanese culture. Personally, I think that the Tale of the Heike inspired Zeta and Double Zeta the same way and almost to the same extent that World War II inspired First Gundam. The Tale tells the story of the Genpei War, a civil war that I described as apocalyptic back in Episode 2.5, and for good reason. This war brought the nearly 400-year-long Heian era to its close, and inaugurated the Kamakura Bakufu, the first shogunate to rule Japan. It marks the end of japan's classical period and the beginning of the medieval period in much the same way that the fall of the western roman empire roughly marks the end of the classical period and the beginning of the medieval period in europe like the grips conflict and the neozeon war playing out in the shadow of the one year war the tale of the Heike and the genpei war were also the echoes of earlier wars although in this case the echo proved far louder than the original sound so I guess it's more like an echo that triggered an avalanche. I'll work on the metaphor. Before we talk about the war that brought it all tumbling down, though, I do need to set the stage both for the era and for the players. By the beginning of the Heian era, the Yamato clan, the same family that still holds the Chrysanthemum throne of Japan today, had taken control over most of what we would now recognize as Japan. Hokkaido and Okinawa remained totally free from imperial control, and there were remote regions on the main islands of Honshu, Shikoku, and Kyushu still outside the rule of the emperors. In fact, the Heian era began in the middle of a 38-year-long war between Imperial troops and the Emishi, a distinct ethnic group inhabiting the northern part of Honshu. This war brought most of the Emishi into the empire, but it left a small independent territory north of the Kitakami River. Even so, by the Heian era, the expansion and consolidation of the empire was mostly over. The Heian era was defined by peace and security for the empire, which is appropriate since the name Heian means peace or tranquility. The imperial court was based in Heian-kyo, modern Kyoto, which they built in imitation of the Chinese Tang capital. Japan had long looked to nearby Tang China for trade, culture, literature, philosophy, and as a model for how to run a centralized government. The Yamato Emperor's Ritsuryo Code was adapted directly from the Tang administration. But by the beginning of the Heian Period, the Tang Dynasty was in decline. And then, around the year 900, it collapsed. Provincial warrior elites rebelled, One general was at first instrumental to defeating a major revolt, but then he turned around and used the power and prestige that he had built by crushing the emperor's enemies to seize control of the imperial court. He replaced the emperor with his own puppet, and shortly thereafter he took the throne for himself. You should remember this part, by the way, because it's going to be on the test.
0: There's a test?
1: Over in Japan, the Heian era saw the decline of the imperial family's power as they were slowly displaced by their ministers, the noble, but not imperial, Fujiwara clan. The Fujiwara developed a system where the leading patriarch of the clan would marry his daughter to the reigning emperor. Then, once a son was born from that union, the emperor would be forced to retire, and the child, often just a few years old at this point, would be made emperor. Naturally, the Fujiwara leader, who was also the child's maternal grandfather, would rule in his stead as regent. This process would then be repeated once the young emperor reached a sufficient age. After all, old enough to reign in your own right is also old enough to sire your own replacement. Besides consolidating Fujiwara control over a perpetual regency, this practice also produced a growing number of retired former emperors, who retained certain powers and privileges and prestige even after abdicating, and these retired emperors were not always pleased with the Fujiwara. Throughout the Heian period, many of them worked to undermine Fujiwara influence, and as the Fujiwara declined, the power of the retired emperors advanced. As for what the rule of the Fujiwara regents looked like, well, being a clan of wealthy, noble landowners, They tended to pursue policies that favored wealthy, noble landowners. Central authority declined, and provincial elites accumulated more power, more wealth, and more responsibility. Much of this was through what was called the Shō'en Estates. Shō'en were large agricultural estates that were both legally outside government control and exempt from taxation. The power and extent of the Shō'en increased steadily throughout the Heian era.
0: That's never gone badly for anyone.
1: No, no. Here's how it worked. Small landowners in the provinces would give their land to a more powerful local landlord in exchange for a share of the produce from the consolidated estate. The landlord would use the wealth brought in by all his new land to make friends among the Fujiwara aristocrats at court those court aristocrats would use their connections to the regent to procure judicial and tax exemptions for that landlord's domain. The landlord would then use the wealth that would have gone to pay his taxes to compensate the smaller farmers who gave him their land, to make private payments to the aristocrats who got him the tax exemption, and of course to enrich himself. The smaller farmers lost their land, but they dodged their taxes, and they acquired a more powerful patron in the local landlord. The rich got richer, the corrupt aristocrats got more corrupt, and the state starved. Thus, this was a world in which the sovereign was effectively powerless, and increasingly impoverished, as the taxes were diverted into private pockets. The emperor became a figurehead, overseeing a vast bureaucracy that exercised real, but often inefficient and self-interested governance. Much of the actual administration of the state was being handled behind the scenes, originally by the Fujiwara regents, but increasingly by the retired emperors. Though the Heian era was mostly peaceful, that peace was disturbed by a handful of major rebellions in the 10th and 11th centuries. To suppress those rebellions, the emperors relied on the services of two sprawling warrior houses, the Taira, also called the Heike, and the Minamoto, also called the Genji. Each house was descended from princes of the imperial family who had been demoted to commoner status. Each of the two main clans was further subdivided based on which emperors had sired which branches of the family tree. These two clans were distributed throughout the provinces, and when the emperor needed them, they would unite to form a force that was somewhere between an army and a family reunion. But eventually, these two offshoots from the Yamato family would turn against each other. And it was all because of an exile's curse coming back to haunt them. Perhaps. In 1141, the emperor Sutoku was forced to abdicate in favor of his half-brother, the 2-year-old Konoe. Sutoku was 22 years old and had reigned since he was 4 years old. His father and the real power at court was the retired emperor Toba. Toba had himself been forced to resign when he was 21 to make way for the child Sutoku. So really this is just the family tradition. The new emperor Konoe was Toba's biological son with a Fujiwara princess, naturally, but for the sake of the succession, Toba forced Sutoku to adopt Konoe and disinherit his own biological children. But Konoe was sickly and never had any children of his own. When he died at the age of 16, Sutoku schemed to reclaim the throne that he had lost, but instead his father Toba, who was still running things behind the scenes, chose another of his own children, Sutoku's half-brother, Go Shirakawa, for the throne. Go Shirakawa was a bit of an unusual choice, because he was already 28, and by all accounts, a strong-willed figure. You may be wondering why was the father Toba so desperate to keep his first-born son, Sutoku, off the throne? Well, let us pause here to indulge in some ancient gossip-mongering. You see... It was widely believed at the time, and seemingly by Toba himself, that his son, Sutoku, had actually been fathered by somebody else. And that somebody else was Toba's own grandfather, the retired emperor, who had forced Toba off the throne and put his secret offspring, Sutoku, on it back in 1123. So like I said, it's, it's the family tradition. In 1156, within a year of Go Shirakawa's ascension, the retired Emperor Toba died. And in the ensuing power vacuum, the still resentful Sutoku immediately went into revolt against the new Emperor Go Shirakawa, who was officially his half-brother but may have been his great-uncle. Among his allies, the rebellious Sutoku recruited the head of the Minamoto clan, Tamayoshi, and a high-ranking but disgruntled Taira warrior, Tadamasu. I know this is a lot of names. Don't worry about it. They're not going to last long. (laughs) What you do need to remember, though, is that this is the leader of the Minamoto clan and a brother of the leader of the Taira. Important guys. The Emperor Go Shirakawa responded by recruiting his own warriors. And in Heian-era Japan, that meant recruiting from the same Taira and Minamoto clans that were backing his rival. In fact, Go Shirakawa's troops were led by Yoshitomo of the Minamoto, who was the eldest son of the leader of the Minamoto rebels, and Kiyomori of the Taira, who was the heir apparent of that clan, and therefore the nephew of the leader of the Taira rebels.
0: Awkward.
1: It's easy to imagine why these clans split along generational lines. Sutoku had been emperor for 18 years, but that was more than 15 years prior. It's natural that his allies, his friends among the warrior clans, would have been the older men who had served during his imperial youth. Younger warriors like Yoshitomo and Kiyomori were practically of an age with GoShirakawa and hoped to make names for themselves during the reign of this new emperor. Sutoku's rebels, who I admit we call rebels mostly because they lost, made their base in a fortified palace. GoShirakawa's loyalists attacked during the night and fought a series of archery duels at the gate, but the defenders were too strong. Unable to break through, the attackers resorted to setting fire to the palace, and in the ensuing chaos they were able to rout the rebels and capture their leaders. In the aftermath, the victorious Taira no Kiyomori executed the leaders of the Taira rebels, his uncle and four of his cousins. It is said to have been the first execution in Japan in more than 300 years. Now, we can't be sure, but some have suggested that this was actually a clever gambit on the Taira's part that was intended to pressure Yoshitomo, leader of the Minamoto loyalists, to also execute the leaders of the rebellious Minamoto. Sure, the Taira would have to execute a high-ranking representative of their family, but that would mean that Yoshitomo, the leader of the Minamoto loyalists, would then be forced to execute his own father who was also the head of their clan, along with five of his younger brothers. It was not exactly an even trade, but Yoshitomo did it. After his allies were executed, retired emperor Sutoku was banished to a remote, cold, rocky province on the northern coast of Shikoku. There he took the tonsure and dedicated himself to religion. But it was widely believed that he resented the imperial court so strongly that he cursed them in life and after his death. They said that he had bitten off his own tongue and used the blood to write cursed sutras imbued with his relentless hatred. When he died in 1164, Go Shirakawa added one final insult by decreeing that there would be no mourning and no funeral for the emperor turned rebel. Whatever Shirakawa's intentions were, it left the people of the capital deeply unsettled. This was not how things were done. And when things began to go wrong, they whispered that it was Sutoku's angry spirit cursing them. They said that he must have become an onryo, a tormented ghost out for revenge for the insults that he had suffered in life. But Sutoku was no ordinary onryo. He would become one of the three great onryo the most powerful of these vengeful ghosts spreading chaos causing natural disasters and turning his enemies against each other to their mutual ruin the memory of sutoku's vengeance was so strong that in 1868 700 years later the meiji government would enshrine him as a kami in the shiramine shrine in kyoto in order to propitiate his presumably still pretty angry spirit and much of what was to come next would be attributed to the exile's baleful influence in much the same way that everyone from Katz and camille to judo and sarasa attribute all the calamities of this era of the universal century to haman's corrupting aura but the disasters that sutoku caused the ruination of his enemies, Go Shirakawa, Kiyomori, and Yoshitomo, and the other way that this ancient story might have inspired Haman, we'll all have to wait for the next podcast.
0: Next time on episode 3.40, Cat-Eyed Kiara. We cover Mobile Suit Double Zeta, episode 42, and... False... Hamaphone? Hamanim? Expressions with the same literal meaning, but different figurative ones. A wife guy. neo boobzilla. OSHA violations. Cleavage.
1: Nina, that's lewd.
0: They're in a mine, I'm talking about rocks! Drone warfare. Jokes that don't land. Judo has a very different memory of Kiara's captivity than I do. And, we all know what good intuition means. You will see the battlefield of new types. MoboSoup Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, gundampodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast, or by email at gundampodcast at gmail.com. Or why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, It was so
4: sad when
0: Rosara died. out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. And thank you for listening.
1: I uh, read an interview with Tomino recently. It's not a recent interview. I want to say it's from like mid 2000s or so. And he said, you know, I went back and I watched Zeta again for the first time since he had made the show. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he said, you know, I always remembered it being really bad. I, I remembered hating it, thinking it was terrible. But now watching it, I think it's all right. It, like, it's not always great, but I can, I think we did something really cool. And that's said It's cool that you can look back on something from 30 years ago and have that experience as the creator.
0: I know my experience as an artist often feels a bit like that. I do calligraphy and some drawing and sketching and watercolors and things. Sometimes I'll look at an old piece of work and really like it. And oftentimes I'll look at an old piece of work and think I've grown a lot beyond it. And sometimes I'll have tried to do something and I'll look at it and be like, that just really did not, (laughs) that did not work out. That wasn't a good idea or that wasn't good execution or what have you. I'm glad Tomino can look uh, somewhat more kindly on some of his old work.
4: Me too.
3: And one more in the style of the Anakin Padme meme. At least your brains are redundant, right? At least your brains are redundant, right? (laughs)
1: Taking some liberties there. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I, also, I also left out the whole Luna and Judo part because yeah, yeah. it's pointless, not important.
1: Well, I mean, I get that the story like, only works if she's hit, right? Yeah. So
0: I'm cutting that. <laughs> of course you are. I knew I was forgetting something in my list earlier.
1: A huge part of the prior episode was this interweaving of the two ways in which Gemon is, like, a parasite.
0: Gemon? You're...
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'll get this done quickly so you can get back to bears.
3: <laughs>
1: but eventually, these two offshoots from the Yamato family would turn against each other. I'm to say that a little more ominously.